Hello, and welcome to the Revelation to John. My name is J.R. Foresteros, and I am the teaching pastor at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene in Dayton, Ohio. You can find me on my blog at jrforesteros.com. And if you have any questions as you go through this podcast, you can email me at jrforesteros at gmail.com. That's jrforesteros at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast as well as to my sermon podcast by searching for me in iTunes or clicking the link on my blog. To aid you in going through this study, you can also download a couple of different resources, both the PowerPoint slides that I use when I teach and also a note sheet if you like to take notes and they're good things to save for later. You can download both of those things at my blog by searching for the Revelation study and then uh, each note sheet and PowerPoint slide is downloadable from the link on the sermon series engine each week. Finally, a note on the format of this podcast. Uh, I am recording this as I am teaching a class, so you often will not be able to hear some of the comments and feedback that the class members make. I will do my best to say those back into the microphone for the podcast, but in case you don't hear those things, uh, I'm sorry, that's just the nature of the format and my recording limitations. All that said, thanks a lot for listening. I hope that you enjoy the podcast, and without any further ado, here is the Revelation study. Uh, I know that I say this every week, but this is one of my favorite weeks. Um, So tonight we are doing chapters 14, 15, and 16, and we're actually going to spend most of our time in chapter 14 because I think, first of all, there's some imagery in there that we haven't really begun to dissect yet that's really interesting and is going to bring forward the themes that we've already seen, but it's going to bring them forward in a new way that I think is going to really be interesting to you and something that will be very meaningful. And then uh, we've already seen the things that are going on in chapter 16 before. We're just kind of turning and looking at them from a different lens. So we won't really spend a lot of time going through the, the bowls of wrath in detail because, again, we've already seen all of that. We're just going to talk more about what this other perspective on them means and why we're doing it this way. So, It's going to be fun tonight. Let's get going. We began many moons ago with seven letters to seven churches. We saw that there was a prophet named John who was on an island in the eastern Mediterranean called Patmos. We're not exactly sure why he was there, but he says it was on account of the word of the Lord. And so we assume that it was some kind of persecution that he had gotten exiled there. And when he is worshiping on a Sunday, he receives a revelation of Jesus. Jesus comes to him and tells him to take dictation because he has messages for the seven churches that are in John's church network in these seven cities in the Roman province of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And so as we worked through those letters, we saw that there were uh, there was really one core issue that was at play in these letters, and that was... How do you stay faithful to God in a culture that is faithless? And we saw that there were many different responses among these seven churches. Some of the churches were taking a a strong, hard stand against false teaching, but it was almost to the point where they were becoming legalistic and cold, and they had lost the love that had originally brought them to Christ. Some of the churches were staying faithful to God, and they were not compromising with the empire, and they were suffering for it. Uh, Some of the churches had compromised to some degree. They had allowed some false teachers into their churches, and they were trying to figure it out, and they weren't taking a hard stand and remaining faithful to God. And then a couple of the churches had become so compromised that it was questionable whether they even still really counted as churches. And so in Sardis, they had the reputation of being alive, even though they were dead. 
And he said, you're, you're not quite dead, though. It's time to wake up. And then in Laodicea, it was as though Jesus had come to town and no one even knew who he was because they had such a, such a, a limited impact on their community for Christ and they'd become so self-reliant and so involved in their cultural ways of defining success and faithfulness uh, that they didn't look like God anymore. And so into the, into the whole uh, big complicated picture of the seven churches, Jesus came and the revelation of his person and his character is what was to provide truth and light for all seven of the churches, no matter what their problems were, the answer to their problems was Jesus. And so uh, we started there, and then very quickly we moved into the heavenly throne room. And so for the next uh, eight chapters, John was standing in heaven in the throne room, and he was watching uh, all of these things happen. And so if you remember, the, the problem was the, the thing that kept heaven and earth from being one, the thing that kept God's will from being done on earth as it was in heaven, is sin. And so it was uh, pictured as this scroll that was being held in God's hand, and you know no one could open the scroll. And then they saw that Jesus, the Lamb who had been slain, was worthy to open the scroll. And so we saw our first real picture of the fact that Jesus conquers by dying, and it was actually his death and resurrection that made him worthy to defeat sin and to open the scroll and to bring about the end of the world. And so he begins to unseal the scroll, he begins to unveil the will of God, and the particular imperial context that these churches were living in began to fall apart. And so we saw throughout the rest of chapters 4 through 11 that there was a conflict between eschatologies. You know, who really has the way uh, to fulfill human destiny? Is it Rome in the Pax Romana? Or is it God and Jesus uh, in the person of, you know, the lamb who was slain? And, of course, the Revelation argues, no, that if you actually want to have a full humanity, if you actually want to have the life that you were created to have, that's only found in Jesus and in worshiping God and not Caesar. And so all of that came to an end. And then we wanted to ask, we wanted to back up a little bit and say, okay, but, but if God's way is really the way, then why are God's people suffering? What, where is this tension coming from? And so we saw this picture of Satan being cast down out of heaven uh, because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It was actually the death and resurrection of Jesus that finally ultimately defeated him. And once he was on the ground, he was angry because he knows that his time is short. And the only way that he can actually hurt God at this point is to hurt God's children. And the only way that he can hurt us is to get us to compromise and to turn our backs on Jesus and to not stay faithful to him. And so the dragon sets out with a strategy to undermine Christians' faith and faithfulness to Jesus. And so we saw, this was two weeks ago, the last time we met in chapter 13, that the dragon empowers empire or Babylon in the form of this big monstrous beast from the sea. And that beast uses force, coercion, and intimidation to convince everyone in the world to follow it and to worship it, and then also thereby to worship the dragon. And some within the church advocate compromising with this beast and following its way. And so we saw that there was this land beast that looked like the lamb, looked like Jesus, but it spoke the words of Satan. So we saw that, that in addition to this big evil empire, there were actually people within the church, which we knew from those letters. There were people within the church that were saying, no, you should just go along with the way the empire says to do things. And so they, they, even though they looked like Jesus, they spoke the words of Satan. And so by the end of that chapter, we get that there are these two armies. There's God and the Lamb and then the people of God. Those who have been faithful, those who have been sealed by God. And then there are the dragon and the beast and this land beast or Satan and empire, and uh, the, the false teachers in the churches, and all of those people who have received the mark of the beast, rather than being sealed by God, they've been sealed by the beast. 
And so that brings us into chapter 14 where these two armies are squaring off and we're sort of anticipating that this ultimate battle between good and evil is finally going to happen. But just like everything else in Revelation, we have to wait on it. Even though it's it's here, it's not here yet. So uh, let's look in chapter 14, uh, just after we've met the army of the Lamb that stands with him on Mount Zion, because now we're going to get some agents of judgment. So, beginning in verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Then another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then another angel, a third, followed them, crying with a loud voice, Those who worship the beast and its image and receive a mark on their foreheads or on their hands, they will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured unmixed into the cup of his anger, and they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image and for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, who keep those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who from now on die in the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and there was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to the one who sat on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So the one who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Then another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire, and he called with a loud voice to him who has the sharp sickle, Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vines of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and gathered the vintage of the earth, and he threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of about 200 miles. So that's some stuff happening, right? Uh, I want to go back and first talk about this first angel. So the last time we saw something flying in the mid-heaven, it was that eagle that cried out the three woes. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Uh, But here we have an angel who is flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those on the earth. Now, again, the word gospel was a word that the the church took from the Romans. Today, when we hear the word gospel, we think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the word gospel is actually something that Romans used to talk about things that happened in the Roman Empire that supported their uh, claims to rule everything. So we would call it today like imperial propaganda. So, for instance, if Rome won a big military victory, or if a new Caesar was born, or if a new Caesar took the throne, they would actually dispatch evangelists to go out into the Roman Empire and tell everyone this good news. Hey, good news, everyone, we beat this army. Hey, good news, everyone, this new guy is Caesar. Hey, good news, everyone. And the reason it was called good news was because if Rome's way really is the way, if they are the ones who actually are going to bring about the fulfillment of human destiny, then anything that helps them continue to rule 
is good news. Right? And so, so they would make sure to call any of their reports, not just news updates, they would call them good news. And the word in Greek, good news, it's, uh, it's evangelion, which is where we get our word evangelism, evangelist gospel. And so that, so the, the, the Romans were the first ones that had evangelists. We, we took that idea from them. Because we said, well, actually, Caesar's way isn't the best way. There's this other God who's really the king of kings and lord of lords. And it's actually really good news that he was born. And it's actually really good news that he lived and taught and showed us the right way, not the Roman way, but God's way. And it's really good news that he died and rose from the dead. And so Christians became evangelists who went out into the world proclaiming a counter-gospel, saying, no, 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 Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. And then, since the Roman Empire's gone and Christianity's still around, we got to keep the word gospel. So, when the angel flies through mid-heaven proclaiming an eternal gospel, this was this is a line in the sand. Because Rome claimed to be the eternal empire. You know, when, when they had these pictures of the goddess Roma sprawled on a, a throne of luxury and plenty, that wasn't just like someone got bored and decided to carve a picture in a rock. I mean, they, they were telling you that their way is the way. And, and that their way is the eternal way. And that it's never going to get any better than right now when Rome's in control. And now we have this angel flying through mid-heaven announcing an eternal gospel. And if I were to ask you, this isn't really a trick question, but if I were just to ask you, you know, what are some things that you think would be part of a gospel proclamation, uh, a church gospel pro- proclamation? We know what the Romans would say. What would what would a Christian gospel sound like? What would be some elements of it? Let's throw some stuff out. Not a trick question. That Jesus died for our sins. Good. Absolutely. Yep. Good news. Jesus died for your sins. What else? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. What else? I mean, that's that's kind of the core of it. You took everyone else's answers, but <laughs> what's that? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yes. Anything else? He's sending the Holy Spirit to watch over us. Okay. Good. Good. Yep. Sure. Yep. Well, let's look at what the angel actually said the gospel is. Because it's not what we... I've never heard anyone say this is the gospel. The eternal gospel the angel says is, Fear God and give him glory. For the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. That, that's the gospel uh, at this point in Revelation. And again, what's interesting about that is we have to remember where we are in the story. What's just happened in chapter 13 was this enormous, monstrous, frightening beast has emerged on the land and it's begun to wage war against the people of God and it's begun to use force and intimidation and coercion to rule the world. And if you remember, people were afraid of the beast and they said, who is like the beast and who can make war against it? And so there are all of these people in the world who, who fear the beast. And they're following the way of the beast. They're receiving the mark of the beast. They're worshiping the beast's image out of fear. fear. And they think, again, when we say that it's out of fear, what's really going on is there is that, that they think that if they go along with the beast, they'll be safe. 
I mean, that's, that's what the, we mean by fear, right? If I don't follow the beast, then it's, then it's bad for me. Doing the beast's way is the best way. And so here this angel comes out and says, no, 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 here's the good news. Fear God, not the beast. And give God glory, not the beast. For the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him, not who came out of the sea, but the one who made. The one who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. If you're going to be worshiping someone, worship the one with the power to make and unmake. No matter what it looks like right now, make sure you're worshiping the right person. That, and that you can see how that is a good news proclamation. And it's a directly uh, counter-proclamation to what Rome was saying. To what, really, to what any empire says. So, the reality is, of course, if God is king, then that means that Caesar is not king. That any human emperor is not king. And so we get... Now this curious phrase from the second angel who says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has made all the nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. I don't know how some of your other translations render fornication, but uh, maybe unfaithfulness or I don't know. But uh, this is an interesting, there, there are several things that are going on here where John is basically reaching back into the Old Testament, and we've seen him do this several times, and he's bringing forward some really strong images to help us understand what's at stake in the early first century. So when John refers to Rome as Babylon, he's not just speaking in code. I've heard some commentators say, well, you know, John didn't want to get in trouble when like a Roman read his scroll. So he used all of this code. And the problem is it's just not actually very subtle. Like in a few, uh, in actually in chapter 17, when he says, when he says, now the beast, I'm going to give you a hint about it. The seven heads of the beast are the seven hills on which the city, on which the, the woman sits. Well, Rome is infamous for its seven hills. That's what it's called. It's like the seven hills of Rome. So any idiot who read that, especially if they were Roman, would have known, oh yeah, that's Rome. So it's not that John is writing in code so he can avoid getting caught or something like that. He's not, he's not saying Babylon instead of Rome uh, in order to not make the wrong people mad. He's actually, what he's really doing is expanding the scope of his, uh, of his vision. Rather than identifying, uh, by, by identifying the current evil empire for this church, Rome, as Babylon... Uh, John is turning Babylon into the symbol of the culmination of human sin. And we've seen this a few different times, right? Babylon stands the same way the Tower of Babel did in in Genesis 11 for the pinnacle of human arrogance, right? Uh, Anytime people get it in their heads that they can replace God, what do they do? They set themselves up as rulers. They set them. And so if, if you take over a little group of people, you're like a little chieftain or something. If you take over a little bit bigger group of people, you're a king. But if you really try to take over the whole world, you're an emperor. But it's all the same, it's all the same basic inclination of our heart. It's all the same basic leaning away from God. It's all the same, an empire is any group of people that says, we are going to remake the world in our image. We're going to go and conquer all of these other peoples and we're going to make them embrace our way because our way is the best way. And that's just the, that's the exact same sinful impulse that we all have. It's just magnified onto a global scale. But it's the same inclination of our hearts. And so John has taken that inclination that he's named it. He calls it Babylon. And he says, look, you can, you, can, you can erase all of the particular labels that are on all of these little moving parts. And if you just step back, it's human history in the same story that's played out over and over and over again. 
you know, it's Cain and Abel. It's the Tower of Babel. It's every kingdom that's ever lived. That's what hu- that's that's the fundamental sickness at the core of the human heart. Is that because we've turned away from God, we said, I can do that better. And so we we take and we hurt and we conquer and we use fear and intimidation to get our way and to impose our way on everyone else. And so now, rather than just dealing with this one particular group of churches in this one particular time period, John is cracking this wide open and he's saying, look, let's, let's talk about eternal things. Let's talk about the way people always are. Let's talk about uh, a temptation that's going to face every church at every time. There are always going to be empires until God comes back. There are always going to be empires and there are always going to be followers of the Lamb who are trying to resist those empires. And it's always going to be messy and it's always going to be confusing and it's always going to be hard, but this is what's always going to be happening. And that's why we call it Babylon. So, John also introduces, in addition to Babylon, he introduces this wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, uh, this is, I think I left a, a scripture from Isaiah there on your sheet. Um, this is an interesting symbol in the Old Testament, and it's pretty complicated, but I'm, I'm going to try as carefully as possible to unpack it. But if, if, if we get a little bit turned around in here, make sure that you understand this before we move on. So ask me questions, slow down, whatever we need to do. So this is one example of several where an Old Testament prophet uses this metaphor of a cup of wine to be a symbol of God's wrath. So here's what Isaiah says, uh, and he's speaking specifically to the Israelites after they've been exiled. He says, rouse yourself, rouse yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl of staggering. There is no one to guide her among all the children she has born. There is no one to take her by the hand among all the children she has brought up. These two things have befallen you. Who will grieve with you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your children have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord. They rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are wounded, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your sovereign Lord, uh, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. See, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. You shall drink no more from the cup of my wrath. Now, what Isaiah is doing here is actually saying, okay, now, Israel, you people who have been conquered and exiled, you have been drinking from the cup of my wrath, but you're not anymore. I'm actually going to restore you. So here he's talking about restoration and redemption, but up until what got Israel to that point was this conquest by, and he's specifically in this case, it's, it's the actual empire of Babylon, the actual Babylonian empire, not the metaphorical one that's all empires. So here he's saying uh, that, and, and what you see throughout the Old Testament is that God's wrath is revealed against Israel by conquest. Uh, we could actually say that God's wrath is revealed against Israel by empire. So throughout the scriptures, what I mean by that is throughout the scriptures, whenever God's people sin, the way that God punishes them is God allows them to be taken over by some outside force, by, by conquest. And 
that way of punishing Israel is consistent with what we've seen in Revelation so far. In Revelation, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, God punishes the world by removing his hand from the people, by allowing them to suffer the full effects of what, they, what they're what they asking for. He basically says, okay, you want a world without me? Look, here it is. Here's what happens. And so when Israel turned away from Yahweh, they didn't just quit worshiping God. Read through the prophets, read through the king's narratives, read through any of that. They started worshiping other gods. So, for instance, in the book of Judges, when we meet Gideon, Gideon is actually an idol worshiper. He's worshiping a different god other than Yahweh, and Yahweh comes to him and he's like, Hey, don't you hate being conquered all the time? Why don't you quit being an idolater and I'll set you free? And so that's what Gideon does. And he sets out on this, and one of the first things he does is he tear down, tears down all of the idols in Israel because they'd never, they never just became atheists. Whenever they rebelled, it was always they started worshiping Baal or whoever else was around them. And so, uh, and, and what they did with that is they were always trusting these other gods to keep them safe and secure. So you, you are probably familiar with the story of Elijah in, I think it's in 2 Kings or 1 Kings, whatever Elijah is. Uh, Elijah worships Yahweh, the God of Israel, but evil king Ahab worships Baal. And Baal is a Canaanite fertility god. He, he was like sort of like Thor. He was the one that you prayed to for rain. And so God judges Israel for three years under, under Elijah. Does anyone remember what that judgment was? Yeah, for how long? Oh, I said it right for three years. Yeah, sorry. So, God, and, and again, this is why that's a judgment. God says, okay, you want to worship your rain god? Go ahead. I'll wait. And you see how long it takes to rain. Keep praying to him. Keep praying to him. And for three years that goes on. And you would think at some point that Israel will get wise and be like, man, Baal just can't make it rain. Maybe we should start worshiping Yahweh again. But they don't. That's when they have to do the big showdown at Mount Carmel with the building of the altars and all of that stuff. And immediately after Israel repents and kills all the prophets of Baal, what happens? It rains. So what we see over and over and over in the Old Testament is when Israel would turn away from God, they would turn to other gods for provision and protection and safety and all of those things that God has always promised to provide them. And because they looked elsewhere, God said, okay, fine. If you're not asking me for safety and for provision and for protection, I won't give it to you. And then they get conquered over and over and over. And then someone would finally figure it out and go, we should probably repent. They'd repent, they'd start worshiping God again, and then they would receive God's provision and protection again. But God's wrath was always, always, always revealed against Israel as conquest, as empire. And one of the main ways that the prophets talked about this was with this, this uh, image of the, the cup of wrath. And so what they would say when, when Isaiah said, God's been making you drink from the cup of his wrath, what he meant by that was God gave you over to be conquered by the Babylonians. And for the last however long it's been, you've been getting conquered real good. But now, and then what you saw in, in, in Isaiah, right? God says, but now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit making you drink from that. I'm going to restore you, which is the promise of restoration that the exiles enjoyed, right? But, but again, it was... It was Cup of wrath equals conquest equals empire equals destruction for idolatry. And no cup of wrath means not that. So, oh yeah, a nice little picture of the... Oh, I got a little cup in it. Yeah, okay, there we go. So when um, 
when we go to this uh, second proclamation, it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has made all of the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So again, what did we see the beast doing? The beast conquered the world and made them worship it. And that's this, that's this cup of the wrath of her fornication, right? Just like we saw God giving people, the peoples of the earth, over to these plagues and saying, look. And the point of that was to bring about repentance, but people wouldn't repent. So now we're seeing here, they should be worshiping God, not the beast. But they won't. And so God gives them over to the beast and says, okay, this is what you wanted. You wanted this. These are the gods you're worshiping. Go ahead. See what life is like with them. And it kept getting worse and worse and worse, but people would not repent. So this scripture right here, uh, these angels are talking about what's going on in Israel at that time? Uh, at that time and any time. I mean, we could, we could again, we could make the same... Yeah, it would apply anytime. Anytime. Anytime there's empire. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anytime there's a human power that's trying to remake the world in their image... People follow it out of loyalty, out of fear, out of intimidation. And Israel did it all throughout Israel's history. Uh, The church has been guilty of it all throughout our history. You know, getting a little bit too cozy with whatever nation we happen to find ourselves in. So, you know, you can take an extreme extreme example like where uh, German churches were supporting the Nazi party. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah. So, and all again, the Nazi Party is another great example. They said theirs was the eternal right. There was going to be a thousand year, the thousand year kingdom, right? And if you follow us, we'll bring peace to the earth. It's peace under my boot, but it's peace, right? And there were churches that said, "Sign us up." So. Maybe in the beginning of things like that, it's easy Absolutely. to believe that what they're saying is, is the truth. Yes. And, you know, everyone has prejudices, so you play on those prejudices, right? I mean, em- empire, the, the, empires that, the empires that become empires don't get there by accident. They're incredibly intelligent. You know, the Roman Empire was built under Caesar Augustus, who I'm still convinced was probably the single most incredibly excellent ruler from a human perspective there's ever been. I mean, you look at everything he ever did, and he is just brilliant at getting everyone to think that his way is the best. Everything he did. I mean, he's just brilliant. And you look at how Rome ruled in his wake, and everyone was just trying to be like him, because he had it figured out. The way he fought, the way he ruled, the way he made treaties, uh, everything. The way he ran Rome while everything else was going on. Everything. I mean, he's just incredible, incredible. Evil genius, but genius, you know, and so these these like, just like you said, yeah. If you if you want to rule a bunch of people and get them to do what you want them to do, there are lots of ways to do that. And if you're smart, you'll be subtle about it. Yep, yep. That's the old the old adage of you don't throw a frog in a boiling pot of water because it'll jump out. You put it in there in cold and just turn up the heat gradually, and it'll just sit there like an idiot till it's dead. So I've never actually tried that, but I hear that that is what works. So if anyone's ever actually boiled a frog. Probably have things to talk about. So, <laughs> unless you like frog legs, in which case, okay. Um, so, so uh, what what we need to, what we need to take from all of this discussion for being able to move forward is that the prophets 
uh, the prophets turned this pattern of conquest into a cup metaphor and a wine metaphor. Okay, That when God would make the nation drink his wine, what that meant was God would give them over to conquest. And so what's interesting here is that in the this, in this second angel's quote in chapter 14, though, it says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Past tense. When obviously, at the time this was written, the Babylon of the time had not fallen. And obviously, throughout history since then, there have been Babylons that have risen and fallen. But this is the same picture that we saw with the dragon. The dragon has already been defeated. Even though evil is still alive and well in the world, its day is over. It's already lost. And so Babylon, that, that, that universal human impulse to take God's place has already been defeated. It's already been cast down. And we're going to see how in just a second. In my, if I had to pick one favorite thing in the book, it'd probably be this harvest right here. I probably say that about everything, but for tonight, tonight, at least, this is my favorite in the book. Okay, Uh, the third, the third angel and the voice from heaven. Again, things we've already seen. Those who those who choose the beast and who worship its image and who take its mark, bad things for them. And uh, hang in there, saints. Right. I mean, again, this is this is stuff we've seen uh, repeatedly so far. So um, good. I want to read this. Uh, I want to read this a uh, little bit at a time, starting at verse fourteen as we work through it. So um, the next four figures here, this weird little harvest going on, uh, are a picture of God's judgment. Okay. Uh, now this time the the central figure is Jesus Himself. You notice that the first picture we get is one who is like the Son of Man, and that is uh, that is sort of New, New Testament code for Jesus. We had him described like that in chapter one. Uh, Jesus uses this to refer to himself lots of times. And this time he has a golden crown on his head. This is the gold medal victory crown, not the I'm a king and ruling crown. So again, it's symbolizing this is the victorious Jesus who has appeared on the cloud like one like the Son of Man pulling from Daniel. And he's holding a sickle. Uh, I don't see very many pictures of painted of Jesus holding a sickle. He's got a lamb or a shepherd's crook or... Sometimes he's on a cross, but no one ever no one ever paints him on a cloud with a sickle. So any of you who are feeling artistic, there's a hole in our artistic tradition right there for you. Um, so then I looked, and there was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to the one who sat on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So the one who sat in the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, uh, reaping is a common prophetic metaphor for judgment. So again, we like following all of the Old Testament tradition. This reaping is judgment. And for those of you who are farmer friendly in here, what do you reap with a sickle? Wheat. Yeah, yeah not a trick question. Some people every time I ask questions, like people kind of eyeball me. Fun. No, just this is a wheat harvest, right? Um, and so, so again, yeah, we have that. Now, the second one is where it gets weird. Uh, 17, then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. So now, whereas Jesus was doing the wheat harvesting, now this is an, ang- an angel who has a sickle who's about to do this other harvest. And then another angel, this is like seventh if you count Jesus in there, sixth if you don't. Then another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over fire. And he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. So this is that angel that came out. It was not Jesus. 
Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. Okay, so this is weird. Anyone anyone into viticulture? Isn't that how you say grape harvesting? Anyone harvest grapes? No? You don't do it with a sickle. Okay, obviously because you want to keep the grapes whole, and a sickle's a big sharp knife, and so you would probably end up with a lot of burst grapes. So this is this is the weird part of the of the prophecy or the vision. Okay, the the, the grain harvest, everyone's like, yeah, that's what that's what you do, but you don't use a sickle to harvest grapes. So this is the part where we're like, oh, what, what is what is happening here? Then it gets weirder. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and gathered the vintage of the earth, and he threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Now that's interesting because just a few moments ago we had a cup filled with the wine of the wrath of Babylon's fornication. And wine is made from grapes. And now we have the wine press of the wrath of God. And we know from, again, the prophetic tradition, from what we've already seen in, in Revelation, fornication is a spiritual symbol for what? Or a symbol for what spiritual condition? Unfaithfulness. Spiritual unfaithfulness. We call that idolatry right so Hosea had to marry a prostitute God was like I want you to marry this person who's going to cheat on you so that then you can say hey Israel it's no fun to be cheated on and that's how I feel every time you worship an idol right so what we have here is we're finding out where that wine was coming from now all of these grapes are being gathered up and they're being thrown into the wine press of the wrath of God and then it gets weirder. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of about 200 miles. Now, they did not measure in miles in the Old Testament, so does anyone's translation have what John originally said? Yes, 1,600 stadia. Okay? So, now it doesn't matter how much, it's about 200 miles. Um, but, again, it's a number, and we're in the book of Revelation, so we should try to play with it a little bit. What might 1600 mean? This is the, the this, I'm telling you, this is the best. This is probably the all-time best. <laughs> uh, no, just if it's, it's 1600 stadia, it's about 200 miles, but it's, oh, sorry, sorry, yeah. Sure, let it let it let it be a distance. Let's focus on the number itself. One thousand six hundred. How can you mathematically get there? Four times four times. Four times four times ten times ten. What does the number four mean? Earth, right? Four corners of the earth. Four cardinal directions. And what is ten? Completion, wholeness, all, totality. So, 4 times 4 times 10 times 10 would be a symbol for what? The whole earth. So now, now we have something interesting happening. Now we have blood that covers the whole earth. And it's coming from, quote unquote, outside the city. Now that probably doesn't mean a lot to those of us with modern ears. Because our first question would be, well, what city? But outside the city is actually a sacred geographical location because does anyone know why? Does anyone know what happened outside the city? 
Yes. Jesus was crucified outside the city. And there are multiple New Testament references that make explicit to that. Uh, probably my favorite is uh, Hebrews chapter 12, where it's talking about how you're going to suffer for being a Christian. And it says, but Jesus himself was crucified outside the city, outside the walls, outside the place where it's safe. So let us go outside the city and join him and be identified with this crucified. It's, just, it's, it's good. Go read it sometime. Um, but when John says that blood covers the whole earth from outside the city, suddenly we're going, whoa, whoa. And this blood is coming from where? The winepress of the wrath of God? Interesting. This all has strong, strong Christological language going on in it. But, 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 we have this wheat harvest. What's going on with that? We have a wheat harvest and a grape harvest. Could be. And then the second harvest was where they destroyed the ones that were left. The, the wicked? Yeah. Could be. Let's hold that for a minute. Yeah. What do you make with wheat? Bread. And what do you make with grapes? Wine. Wine. This is the Eucharist meal. This is the crucifixion. And so we have to ask, if this is a picture of judgment with reaping, that's what judgment is, we need to ask what's going on here. And there's some, there's some powerful imagery happening. Powerful imagery happening. Uh, we talk about Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's story. Right? We, say that, we say that God entered into salvation history with a covenant to Abraham. And he said, Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And then, then Israel came to Mount Sinai, right? And God said, if you will be my people, then I will make you a kingdom of priests that's going to reach all the world. And then when we got to David, God's making a covenant saying, you will always, always, always have a son on my throne. And so throughout Israel's history, there's been this promise that there is someone coming there is a time coming when through israel god will redeem and restore everything the problem is that israel wasn't any holier than any of the rest of humanity all us gentiles are there any are there any ethnically jewish people we all gentiles okay (laughs) so all us gentiles right israel wasn't any better than all of us gentiles israel sinned over and over and over and we've seen already tonight that when they sinned god gave them over to his wrath which was conquest by empire So Jesus is born. God becomes one of Israel. And he's better than Moses. He's better than David. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Solomon. He's better than John the Baptist. He's better than Elijah. He's the fulfillment of everything. Because unlike all of those people, unlike the first Adam, this new Adam was without sin. He always lived according to God's way. And he was born right smack in the middle of an Israel that was living under conquest by an empire. He was born under God's wrath. And what happened to Jesus? Well, he grew up and he taught and he had the audacity to say that the way that this empire said was the way to life wasn't actually the way to life. And they killed him for it. So Jesus actually bore God's wrath against his people. Literally, he died under God's wrath. When we say that sin killed Jesus, like, 
We can say that in a fairly literal fashion. If empire really is the, the sinful impulse blown up to a global scale, well, that's what killed Jesus. And so here we get a really fascinating picture of that, where Jesus is both the harvester and the harvested. Jesus is both the agent of judgment and the one who is being judged. And that's the Christian story. That you can continue in your sin and bear the full weight of that sin, which is death, or Jesus can die in your place. And you can find the life that is really life, that you were always meant to have, that you messed up, But that means you follow the way of God, not your own way, not any other person's way, not any other empire's way. It's remaining faithful to God's way. Questions, comments, thoughts? I know, I told you, it's the best thing in the book. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think I think that the imagery is meant to be grotesque. Be- because again, your your initial reading of it, you don't look at that and go like, oh yeah, that's Jesus dying and his blood covering the world. Like that's you have to work at that through the sim- through the layers of symbol to get there. Your first reaction is up to the horse's bridle for about two miles. Whoa. And 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 I think it's I think there's a lot of things going on there. I think it's the seriousness of sin, the the real cost of uh, of sin. I think it's the, the actual uh, anger that God has towards our sinfulness. I, I, think, I think that image lets us not downplay any of that. Oh, sorry. I forgot the other picture. There we go. Yeah. Oh, and look at that. I had all these pictures. It would have been so much more dramatic if I had been paying attention. <laughs> okay. Any other questions about the grain harvest and the grape harvest? Okay, let's read chapter fifteen. Then we're we're doing pretty well on time. We're gonna have lots of lots of time left for application. Okay. Chapter fifteen. Uh, we're gonna move these last two bits pretty quickly um, so that we can get to the application stuff again. Like I said, that was the harvest was what I wanted to spend our most time on. Then I saw another portent in heaven, great and amazing, in case you aren't amazed yet. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is ended. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds, Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your judgments have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the temple of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of this temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues, robed in pure, bright linens, with golden sashes across their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. 
and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were ended. It's significant that Jesus has already been crushed before we move into the final series of seven judgments, because it's a a reminder that in everything that happens next, the way to life has already been opened. At any point in the rest of this sequence, repentance is a complete option. You can join the army of the lamb. You can repent of the beast. And so with the picture of this crushed Jesus in our heads, John takes us back up into the throne room. And we get, uh, we get the sea of glass, we get the four creatures and all of that. But this time, um, there is a lot of Exodus imagery. So we already have Jesus, who is the lamb that was slain, who's the Passover lamb. But now we get this sea that looks like it's mixed with fire that sort of is reminiscent of, uh, might be reminiscent of the Red Sea. Certainly in this picture that I found, uh, it, it looks like that. It's also interesting that when it says that the countless multitude is standing beside the sea, the, the preposition that's used there is unclear. And you can read commentators argue about whether they're in the sea or whether they're, rather they're beside it, which again, the ambiguity is nice there because of the Red Sea crossing and all of that. Um, they sing the song of Moses, which is the song from Exodus, I believe it's chapter 15, when they cross the Red Sea, and then they have this big song of victory of God freeing them from the empire. And it's interesting that even though it's called the song of Moses, it's not the actual song from Exodus. It's a conglomeration of various passages from the, the Torah, from the first five books of the scriptures. Uh, which again fits because that if, if we're really calling back to the Exodus, that's the law that we received at Sinai, right, is, is the Torah. And then finally, uh, the smoke fills the heavenly tabernacle, which is reminiscent of when, when they, God was living in the tabernacle in the wilderness, it was always filled with smoke, which was the presence. That was how they knew the presence of God was there, was that the tabernacle was filled with smoke. And so John is intentionally giving us all of this really strong Exodus imagery just after he has cast the battle in terms of empire versus God. Right? The first time we heard that story was in Egypt. When God freed his people from an empire. When God released plagues on Egypt to free us from slavery. And if you remember chapter 12, we had the woman who was in the wilderness for time, times, and half a time. right, Three and a half, the, the limited amount of time. And we said even then, that was a callback to the Exodus. And so John wants us to understand that where we are in the spiritual geography is that we are in that wilderness time. We are in between having been set free from slavery to the empire and the freedom and the safety and the security of the promised land, okay? Which we all already knew that, right? I mean, we all, we look around and we're like, well, this is definitely not the promised land yet. There's still evil, there's still sin, there's still death, there's still suffering. This, this can't be God's final intention for creation. So we look around and we know that, but John is giving it to us again in explicitly biblical terms. He wants us to, to, to connect deeply with the exodus story okay uh so chapter six any questions about that again i know we moved through that and there's i wish we had more time to dig into all of the individual moments but i just wanted to make sure that that we are getting to the discussion okay chapter 16 seven angels and seven plagues so saying that what what we're about to read is going to sound very much like the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. So it's, it's things that we've already heard before. And again, if you remember what we've done when we got to the end of chapter 11, we got to the end. 
where the heaven, uh, we saw the Ark of the Covenant, everything was done. Then we kind of backed up, and we've been moving forward again. So what we've done is we've kind of spun, and now we're going to go through all that stuff that we went through before, and you're going to see that it's actually, uh, again, it's, it's magnified even more. So the first time it was things were a quarter, and then the next time through it was a third, and we were asking, if someone asked, however many weeks ago that was. Is there a reason that it's getting more? And I said, wait till we get to the bowls. We're not over to the bowls. And you'll see that it's progressing. And it was said, It was even said, at the beginning of 15, this says, these are the last. These are the last. And again, what we're looking at now is not just Rome and the Pax Romana, but now we're looking at Babylon. Now we're looking at human empire building, that human sin nature. And so what we're seeing is God's judgment in, in a final sense of the word. We've sort of stepped above the historical sphere and we said, This is how God deals with sin. This is how God deals with uh, with human inclination to replace God. This is how God deals with idolatry. This is how God deals with faithlessness. And we're seeing these cosmic lines being drawn in the sand, and we're being told, you're on one side or the other. And you better make sure you're on the right side. And so, uh, calling these last seven judgments plagues, uh, helps us connect it to the Exodus story even more. Just like uh, Israel was freed from Egypt with plagues, so now we're seeing uh, God's judgment against uh, against empire in plague terms. So, here we go. <clears throat> then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured his bowl on the earth, and a foul and painful sore came on those who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. The second angel poured his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing in the sea died, not a third, not a fourth, all of them. Then the third angel poured his bowl into the river and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, After it's been turned to blood, the angel of the water said, You are just, O Holy One, who are and who were, for you have judged these things. Because they shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, O Lord God the Almighty, your judgments are true and just. The fourth angel poured his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, and they were scorched by the fierce heat. But they cursed the name of God who had authority over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory, which is what we've seen before again, right? Typical human response to these plagues is not repentance. The fifth angel poured his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores and they did not repent of their deeds. Again, I think it's so fascinating that they've been worshiping the beast. But when the beast's throne goes dark, they turn to the one who created the sun and curse him, not the beast. It's our propensity for self-deception and sin is unfathomable. The sixth angel poured his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up in order to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw three foul spirits like frogs coming from the mouth of the dragon and the mouth of the beast from the mouth of the false prophet. These are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Parenthetical note, see, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and is clothed, not going about naked and exposed to shame. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. 
The seventh angel poured his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there came flashes of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder, and a violent earthquake, such as has not occurred since people were upon the earth. So violent was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. God remembered Babylon and gave her the wine cup of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, dropped from heaven on people, until they cursed God for the plague of hail. So fearful was that plague. So again, we've seen a lot of this imagery before. We've seen the patterns of behavior before. Um... The, the final the final one ends with this drying up of the Euphrates so that the armies of the beast can finally be assembled from around the world. And they, they meet at Mount Megiddo. Now, uh, that doesn't mean anything to us. Armageddon means something to us because of the book of Revelation. But Mount Megiddo is actually this little kind of like hill in north-central Israel. And it was, I tried to think of like a, a really good... Um, like a really good cultural metaphor that would apply the same way today because it, w- it was a really infamous spot. It, it was actually a spot of Baal worship going way, 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 way back, probably predating Abraham as a site of Baal worship. Uh, wicked King Ahab, who was a Baal worshiper, this was one of his three major administrative centers. Like he had his capital and then he had two other centers kind of around the country. This was one of them. So like pretty bad place there. And then there were several crushing defeats in Israel's military history. This is actually the site where good King Josiah was killed. So in addition to it being like one of wicked King Ahab's favorite places, good King Josiah was killed there. So it was just, it sort of like the Alamo or Pearl Harbor, except we've kind of turned those into like rallying cries, like remember the Alamo? And they'd like, this was more just like all bad, maybe like Auschwitz or something like that. Uh, So it's not surprising for John's readers that the armies of evil would gather here. Like, this is this is where they would be comfortable. Um, and it's interesting that the, the plagues, by calling them plagues, they're meant to have the same effect now as they did on Egypt, which is, uh, if, you've, if, you, if you've ever done a study of the plagues, you know that those were actually attacks against specific Egyptian gods. And so, again, the idea was what we've seen. Um, you know, if you pray to the god of the Nile to keep the Nile good drinking water, like, look, I'll, I'll go ahead and pray to him. See how long it takes him to turn it back into water. Uh, Ra, the sun god, right? So God blacks out the sun. He says, go ahead and pray to Ra all you want see if it works. And it's not until Pharaoh, like, repents and goes to Moses and says, okay, 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 okay. Please make it, please have your god make it stop that God stops it. And then Pharaoh's like, I was just joking. And so these plagues are supposed to have the same effect here, right? They're supposed to show people, look, when you, when you continue in your idolatry, when you continue to drink the wine of Babylon's fornication, look what happens. These gods cannot save you. These ways that are being advocated cannot help you. They cannot save you. They cannot do anything for you. But instead of getting the message over and over and over, people curse God. low point to stop. That's where we're going to stop with the text for this week.
I want to spend the rest of the time talking about, so what? So we've seen these pictures of God's judgment. We've talked about uh, the wine cup of God's wrath and all of the things that that means and how John uses it in the Revelation. We've talked about how the lamb rules, whereas the beast rules by intimidation and fear and coercion. The lamb rules by self-sacrifice, by giving, by dying. And so here's what, uh, I want you to break into little groups for a few minutes and talk about this. Uh, here, here is the reality. Any, any earthly government can become a Babylon. And so I'm curious, what false gods do we wrestle with here in Beaver Creek? What are the ways that you are tempted not to live out the gospel? So, for instance, let me tell you what not to do. If you say, well, you know, there are a lot of people in our culture who support gay marriage, and the church is supposed to be against that, and some churches uh, are, are pro-gay marriage. Well, all of those statements are true, but if you don't support gay marriage, that is not an example you are allowed to use, <laughs> okay? <laughs> because I don't care what all of them do. I don't care how God's going to judge them, we need to talk about us. So I don't know where are you, where do you see this struggle? We've been in this book for a couple of months now, and we've been talking about these issues. And if we really want to hear John's revelation, maybe start with identifying which of those seven churches you would have most identified with. If you need a, if you need a place to start. And, and where are you being tempted to compromise the gospel for the sake of something that's easier or more convenient or less scary. Because I think until we can really start to have some of those honest conversations, uh, we are going to not hear this book and not let this book do what it is trying to do for us. So take a few minutes, talk about that with some of the people around you, uh, and then we will come back together and uh, move forward with all of that. Talk about it as a group. Um, so I want, before I ask you to share, I want to share a couple of thoughts of where I've seen this in my own life. So I think it's only fair since I asked you to talk about it. Uh, so I want to I share one example from my personal life and then one example that I see in, in the larger church uh, where I think we are paying more attention to the culture and what our culture tells us is the path of fulfillment than we are to Christ. So for me personally, one place I very much struggle with this is with regard to consumption and uh, like specifically with like spending and indulging myself. Uh, I'm one of those people that uh, buys first and asks questions later. Once I'm looking at my checkbook balance, I'm like, how did it, how did this happen? Uh, that's when I ask questions. Uh, and so that's, that's been something that I have had to uh, work on. There, there was a time in my life when I was so, uh, so bad at uh, being accountable for my spending that I could not give. I could not be generous at all. I was living paycheck to paycheck, and I was, you know, there was more. There was too much month left at the end of my money, uh, and so I, you know, I'd always I'd, um, got into credit card debt and all kinds of things like that. Uh, it was a very, very bad place, and I had all kinds of justifications for it why it wasn't my fault, and why it was okay, and um, all kinds of things. But what it really boiled down to is the fact that I was not disciplined in my spending. I was not a good steward of the things that God had given me. And I was buying into the cultural thing that we're taught every time we open a magazine or turn on a commercial or anything like that, that the more you buy, the happier you are. And the more things you have, the happier you are. 
And so that that is something in my own personal life that I, I still continue to struggle with. I at least now recognize the impulse. And uh, thanks in part to my fantastic wife, who is the exact opposite of me in many ways, uh, I'm, I'm really learning the discipline of uh, simplicity and the and the joy then of being of actually having resources for that I can be generous the way God calls me to be generous. Uh, so anyway, that's that's one uh, personally. In the church, I think something that we really struggle with is what I, a lot of people call it the cult of celebrity. But again, our culture prizes talking heads. Our culture prizes stars. Our culture prizes people, individuals being important. And in the church, we've bought into that. Uh, we have superstar pastors. We have celebrity people in the church. You know, you anytime you go into church, you can find out within the first couple Sundays there who the who the power players are and who the bigwigs are and you know all that kind of stuff. And and it's unfortunate. Because Christ calls us to the exact opposite of that. Christ calls us to be a body. And the nose cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the hand cannot say to the nose, I don't need you. And I'm pretty sure there's not an appendix in the body of Christ. Um, so we, we need, we all need each other. And I think that shamefully, to our, to our shame, uh, too often the church ignores that and focuses on the, the obvious gifts of a few people and ignores uh, ignores most of the other people who are a part of the body of Christ. And so uh, that is to our detriment, I believe. So those are two things that I have observed that I think really uh, where, where this text speaks to me. So I'm curious to hear uh, what some of your discussion was. What were some things that you felt uh, were places where you are tempted or the church is tempted to trust in the culture and the culture's gods instead of uh, the way of Christ? People allow our lives to become way too busy to focus on God. Good, and and that how, like just tell talk about that. How is that a cultural God? How is that something our culture advocates? You're right because you're right. I think you're totally right. Sporting stuff on on Sundays. When I first moved here, I told them it was the, the school had shut and my daughter went. She had a policy: no no school or no homework on Wednesdays because it was Wednesday was church night. Quickly went away. You know, there's sporting things you have to go to on Sunday morning, soccer, whatever else. Okay, so but it takes away from your going to church. So, but why? Like, why? What's what's the what's the lie that we believe that we participate in those things, or do we just do it mindlessly? Because you want your son or daughter to make the team. Okay. It's competitiveness. Okay. So you have to be the part of the you know what everybody's doing. It's unfortunate that we went from this idea that everything is sacred to nothing is sacred. Right. Yeah. Well, sometimes it's just that TV show that you always got to see. Okay. Good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's at your devotion time, so it's mm-hmm. time, but... Priorities. You know, I think I think under a lot of that, there is this idea that we are what we produce, or our kids, we are what our kids produce, or our kids are what they produce. Um, we are valued by the things that we make. So even at a job, I mean, I I know tons of people that they want the promotion, and so they they put in the extra work because if they don't, someone else will. Right, and so there's this comp- there's there's a competitiveness, there's this 
but but it's all like what I think a lot of what it comes from is we are taught to think of ourselves as valuable because of what we make, because of the output. There's no inherent value or virtue, and even in character at this point, we we've gone so far down that path. Um, you know, it's it's the whole. It doesn't matter how you get to the top, as long as you get to the top. Yeah. You don't even have to really right. produce them. You just have to be active. Have to <laughs> the, illusion <laughs> the illusion of production. The illusion of being part of the crowd. Yes. Being there, I'm always doing that. Mm-hmm. I'm always there. You know, I'm never out, in, you know, back in the background taking care of business. I'm always want to take, the, you know, put the perception out that you are so busy, you don't. Yeah. That you're doing something. Because that's valuable, right? Busyness. I mean, we look at people who are busy. Like, oh, look, they're such a hard worker. Yeah. Right? When I, I used to work at a gas station, and I figured out after I'd been there for a while that if I didn't have anything to do, I should walk around with a clipboard and a pen because otherwise I would get assigned things to do. And it would, you know, it'd be stuff, well, that doesn't really need to be done, but you, you don't look like you have anything to do. Like, well, I can look like I have stuff to do then if that's, the, you know. Uh, so. You don't take people That's right, yeah. So I. People are always like, he but, looks. But so. people evaluate you on that kind of stuff. Yes. Because when I got laid off and was searching for a job for two years, I saw that so many times on applications. Well, what kind of things have you been doing mm-hmm. other than schooling? Yeah. Or, or if you weren't working this year, certain year in there, what did you do during that year? You know, like you had to have something that you were doing. Mm-hmm. So and raising a family isn't good enough. No, 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 it has to be. I don't have a job, so I can't put anything down on that yeah. piece of paper. It's, it's not, it's a very, it hasn't been easy. Yeah. And, and it's so fascinating because woven into the f- fabric of our faith, when we received the Ten Commandments, God says, six days of the week you will do your work, but on the seventh day you and your animals and your slaves and Everything will rest because you were slaves in Egypt. And in Egypt, you were only as valuable as the bricks that you made. And God said, my people will not be known as brick makers. My people will know that their value comes from the fact that they bear my image. And that's it, period. End of the story. And so, so every week, you will take an entire day and be anti-productive. You will intentionally not do anything not because stuff doesn't need to get done, because who has ever once in their life been like, well, I got everything done. I, there's absolutely nothing that I can do now. Right? Never. <laughs> no, it's be- because the truth is our safety and our security and our provision doesn't come from the fact that we got a little bit more done. Yeah. It comes from the fact that God loves us and we are God's children and God will take care of us. But people find their significance in those Yes. And not in Christ. Absolutely. It's just, it's a trap. Yep. It's very easy to do. Well, I, and this, uh, Walter Brueggemann is the one who, who showed me this way of thinking about Sabbath. He said, the Sabbath is the day where everyone puts down their labels and is just a person. So you're, you're, you're not a parent. Uh, you're not, a, a, at least in the sense of like, you know, doing the, the, the job of parenting, right? Relationally, obviously, or something. But you're not a parent, you're not an employee, you're not a boss, you're not a producer. You're just a person. And, and you, you live 
the way that we were originally created to live. You do things that energize you, that charge you up, that make you feel fully alive, not things that drain you. You celebrate. And we all think in our heads, man, that sounds nice, but totally not practical. <laughs> yeah. What else? So yeah, I think you guys nailed it. There's absolutely that. That the productivity is a god of our culture. Yeah, I thought about thinking about the church. You, you wonder how much we, the church, can get into kingdom building, into you know, into nation building, into you know the temptation to grow, into achieve power, and to be looked upon. We want everybody to look to us mm-hmm. because we do things like telephone. Mm-hmm. Which which you can do for the right reasons, yep. but you also can do for you know, status and for all the things that nations that one yep. does. The church can fall into that trap too. And in in all of this discussion, I think you just hit it on the head. What's so hard about this? So if, take my my in my personal example I shared of of the need to learn to live more simply. Okay, it, it, and there was a time even when I did this because what, what we what we tend to do is we tend to take these individual things that God has revealed in our lives and then we uh, universalize them. We say, well, everyone obviously has the same problem because everyone's like me, and everyone should do this. And so there was a time even when I would say, well, you obviously Christians just can't have stuff. And I would quote the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and give it. But see, even though I didn't sell everything I had and give it to the poor, I would just like see rich people should. Um, but. I have met repeatedly people in my life that God has blessed with an incredible amount of stuff. And they have used it to be Jesus to the people around them, including to me. I have received incredible Christian hospitality from people who are unbelievably wealthy. And they're some of the godliest people that I know. And when I look at them, when I look at the way that they use their possessions, it helps me be more like Jesus. So I had to come to a place where I look at them and I had to say, okay, well... Just because I would be really unhealthy if you just dropped all that in my lap doesn't mean that they are. You know, just just because you might have a problem with your family and the soccer schedule doesn't mean everyone does. You know, just, just because one church does Halifon and Weenie doesn't mean every church should. Or even that because you did it last year, it's good to do this year. Right? Just because someone has a busier schedule than you doesn't mean they're obvi- automatically a pagan buying into the god of productivity. Maybe you are, and maybe you need to deal with it. And maybe you need to have a conversation with them about it, but it probably needs to be a conversation. It probably shouldn't be finger-pointing and condemnation. And it's always incredibly helpful to say, you know what, here's something I struggle with. What about you? Because once you've laid yourself open and shamed yourself in that way, it's much easier for other people to say, yeah, maybe that's me too. Or it's easier for them to say, no, that's not me, but that over there, that's me. So, so I, hope, I hope as we continue to move through this book, uh, you know, we have, I think, three weeks left, two, week, two or three weeks left. We'll look at the schedule in a second. Uh, I hope that this is something that stays with you. I hope that you become more aware of the gods of our culture and understand that, uh, you know, rain isn't a bad thing, but praying to bail for rain is. Uh, productivity is not a bad thing, but when you worship the God of productivity, when that's where you draw your self-worth and your meaning, that is a bad thing. That is idolatry. And this is where idolatry leads. The wrath of God is revealed against that. And no one wants to drink the cup of God's wine and wrath and judgment. So, 
Uh, let's pray together, and then we'll talk a little bit about what's coming up in the next couple weeks. God, we're so grateful for the opportunity we have to study tonight, and we're grateful for this picture of your wrath. Um, we are so thankful that you died in our place, that you bore the consequences of our sin for us. We are so thankful that through your death and resurrection, we have the opportunity to be free from the ways of the empires around us, from the gods of our culture. Um, even though they're so tempting, and even though it's easy for us to put our self-worth in those things and to draw our meaning from them, uh, we understand and we believe that worshiping them takes us to very bad places. Uh, we believe when you said that the wages of sin is death, that you mean it. And if we're honest, we can look around and see that that's true. We can see the people that you've taken your hand off and you've delivered them over to their sins, and we can see how that has destroyed them. So as we go out this week, open our eyes to the evils that are in the culture around us. Open our eyes to the false promises that the empires are making today. Because ultimately, we don't just want to understand the revelation that you gave to John in the first century. We want a fresh revelation of Jesus today. We want these scriptures to breathe life into us. And we want to find the freedom and the life that is really life, the life that you promise. And so um, we humbly ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us discernment. And we pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus.